Exploring the intersection of liberty and character. Welcome to the Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed. Welcome to the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed, and I'm here with my producer, Brian Hyde. And as is our custom in our first segment of the Read Hour, we talk about a particular hero that I've selected for the week. And then we'll get into our uh, guest discussion, guest interviews, which will begin about 15 minutes past the hour. I love this discussion of these heroes, Larry, because I get such uh, I get a nice little slice of history every time we talk about one. And, And you actually had to go back more than six centuries for your hero this week. Tell us who was this hero and what did he do? Okay, I'd be happy to. Brian, this is one I've been wanting to write about for some time, and I finally did. Uh, wrote an article for the FEE website, FEE.org, just a couple of weeks ago. The hero that we're talking about today is Watt Tyler. Watt is spelled W-A-T, and his last name, Tyler, is, as you would expect, T-Y-L-E-R. He was the leader of what I call in this uh, article a real rip-snorting tax rebellion in England uh, way back in the year 1381. And uh, it's a phenomenal story. Well, on the one hand, that that does go back a long way. On the other hand, I'm almost kind of relieved to hear that people back then weren't so happy about taxes either. <laughs> G- give That's us, right. Give us some of the background of, of what led to his tax revolt. Okay, the backdrop is that 1381 was, of course, uh, near the end of the 14th century, which was a dreadful time uh, to be alive. If you were 40 years of age in 1381, you were a senior citizen. Uh, You never knew a day when England wasn't at war. In fact, uh, this revolt of Watt Tyler's comes uh, at the tail end of the so-called Hundred Years War. Can you imagine what your tax bill Uh, must be uh, for a war if it's going on 100 years after it started. Uh, But it's also a time, uh, the 14th century, of the Black Death. Uh, So uh, in 1381, people could remember, or their parents, if they were lucky to still be alive, could tell them about the uh, Black Death of the late uh, 1340s, which wiped out about half of the population of Britain, and a comparable uh, percentage uh, across most of the rest of Europe. So this was a tough time, and uh, taxes added to the burden. They were high and getting higher, uh, largely because of the costs of war. England was uh, at, at constant uh, conflict with France for 100 years over uh, lands in France that England claimed. And uh, so the backdrop is basically terrible conditions, sky-high taxes that were about to go even higher. Okay, now let's let's talk a little bit about Watt Tyler. For him to become the leader of this peasant's revolt, what were some of the circumstances and some of the qualities that placed him in that position? Well, he apparently was a, a, a leader, somebody that uh, had a good measure of charisma that others were eager to listen to and to follow. Uh, So he emerged um, in this short-lived but very powerful revolt as the leader, probably for more uh, personal characteristics than anything else. But he he certainly was a firebrand. He was uh, dead set against what the monarchy was doing, uh, dead set against the uh, sky-high taxes, and wanted to do something about it. He wasn't uh, satisfied to just sit back and hope that um, uh, the king or parliament would finally fix this problem. 
Now, I saw your article just a, a couple of weeks ago about this peasants' revolt, and you suggested that uh, this was a very violent uprising. How, how close did they come to, to taking the king out of power? Oh, very, very close. Uh, the proximate cause of it was a poll tax, a per-person tax, that uh, on top of the already heavy tax burden, the parliament and the king tried to impose beginning in 1379 and with a few revisions uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, it, it imposed this poll tax, uh, and that's bad enough, but then parliament contracted out the collection of the tax uh, to mostly private parties. And, you know, this is a kind of... Uh, a combination of the rapaciousness of government with the efficiency of the private sector. <laughs> the parliament didn't care what these private uh, parties had to do to get the money. They just said, you go get it one way or the other. You can keep a, a tidy commission for it. Uh, and as I put it in the article, just imagine as bad as the IRS is today, imagine what things would be like if it hired MS-13 to be your auditor. Yikes. Uh, that's effective. Yeah, that's... <laughs> effectively what Parliament did. It's no wonder that uh, a revolt was sparked by it all. So the, you, you've mentioned the law or, or you've mentioned what it was that sparked it. Um, did, did they actually get the king to, to revisit this tax? Were they able to force him into a position where he had to negotiate? Uh, yes. And I should point out, by the way, that uh, Watt Tyler was uh, known to at least some of America's founders uh, 400 uh, years, almost 500 years later. Um, uh, Thomas Paine paid tribute to him as, quote, a hero and a freedom fighter deserving of a monument in his honor for his contribution to the advancement of liberty. That's uh, uh, Thomas Paine. Uh, they did force the king to the negotiating table. And just before they did that, the rebels uh, under Watt Tyler had formed an army. They assaulted London. They seized the uh, Tower of London, which I'm sure many of our listeners have uh, have visited. And while they were there, they killed the king's top two financial officers, the Lord High Treasurer and, and another one. So uh, the king was forced to the negotiating table. And by the way, his name was Richard, and he was only 14 years of age Whoa. as the sitting king of England uh, at this point. But uh, he finally agreed to meet with with uh, Watt Tyler and the leaders of the rebellion to see what he could do to um, uh, assuage their concerns. So I'm, I'm curious how it turned out then. Were, were they <laughs> able to get their concerns addressed or did this, uh, did this backfire horribly on them at a later time? It really backfired at the meeting itself, as a matter of fact. When I think of Watt Tyler and what he did at this meeting with the king, <clears throat> I'm reminded of uh, some movie characters that I think he's a kind of composite of. Remember the uh, the banjo player on the porch in the movie Deliverance? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and John Belushi, the uh, uh, jello-sucking uh, fraternity brother in Animal House. <laughs> and then you've got uh, uh, the fire-breathing patriot Patrick Henry. Watt Tyler was all three of those guys sort of wrapped up into one. And when he got the king to the negotiating table... I have to give him credit for this. He demanded not only a reduction in taxes, but he also uh, uh, wanted a cessation of England's costly foreign adventurism. He realized that uh, these uh, series of endless wars uh, was at the root of the of the tax problem. He also uh, favored the abolition of wage controls that were imposed on the peasantry. 
he was a president himself, and so he felt the brunt of some of these uh, regulations. And he wanted the elimination of a lot of uh, special privileges for the nobility, including an end uh, to serfdom itself, which, um, of course, did not happen. It would uh, drag on for another couple hundred years. But uh, Watt Tyler uh, threw down the gauntlet and told the king those were his demands. And at first, the king conceded to virtually every demand that uh, Tyler made. So he was, uh, Tyler was on the verge of, of winning when uh, his uncouthness got the better of him. He was thirsty, so he asked for a, a glass of water. It was brought to him, and then he uh, rinsed his mouth out and spit right in front of the king, uh, within inches of the king's face. <clears throat> and at that moment, uh, one of the king's servant, servants uh, objected and shouted an insult to Tyler, who then uh, couldn't constrain himself. He attacked the servant. And then the mayor of London, who was there on behalf of the king, he had to intervene and attempted to arrest uh, Tyler. Then Tyler drew his sword and attacked the mayor. And then it was just all downhill from there, ending in a melee. Uh, Tyler had to flee, uh, but he didn't get very far. And within a day, he was publicly uh, beheaded. And in the absence of its charismatic leader, the peasant revolt dissipated. And then King Richard, uh, uh, who was only 14, as I mentioned, he uh, decided to get even and order the execution of all the rebels that could be rounded up. So it didn't end well. Okay, so what are the takeaways that we can take from the Peasants' Revolt? <laughs> I think several things. Given Watt Tyler's behavior at the meeting with the king, I think one of the lessons certainly is that when you're about to win, uh, clean up your act. You know, <laughs> Don't let something stupid like spitting in the face of the king uh, upset the apple cart when you're about to uh, declare victory. But also it shows, this whole, whole episode in history shows that even at people who have been long tolerant of a um, of concentrated power have a limit uh, to their patience. And when government uh, constantly wants to extract more, it may only be a matter of time before people find a way to resist and rise up in rebellion. That's what they did in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Thank you so much for uh, cluing us in on Watt Tyler and the Peasants' Revolt. You've got a couple of great guests we're going to get introduced to when we come back, right? Yes, I do. Uh, both are uh, authors of articles on education policy. They are educators themselves, Mike Marguson and Justin Spears. This is Lawrence Reed of uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. We're broadcasting on the Loving Liberty Network. And my guests today for the next three segments are two educators, Mike Margison and Justin Spears. Mike and Justin are public high school social studies teachers in the state of Indiana. They are currently working to co-author a book about public education. In advance of that, they recently co-wrote two articles for our website, fee.org, -E on the same subject of that forthcoming book. And the article or articles, parts one and two, are titled The History and Results 
of America's Disastrous Public School System. A controversial title, to say the least. Welcome to The Read Hour, Mike and Justin. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Hey, great to have you. In the first of your two-part article, uh, you guys explore the origins of today's system of compulsory government schools. I wonder if you would give our listeners a thumbnail sketch of where that system came from. Uh, yeah, sure, I can do that. So the American school system is uh, really German at its root, uh, more specifically Prussian. Uh, Prussia was the dominant player in Germany at that time. And they implemented this schooling model in the early 19th century, so a little over 200 years ago. But what's important about that is what was going on in Prussia at the time. They were involved in an entanglement with Napoleon's army. This was known in Prussia as the War of the Fourth Coalition. And uh, to put it basically, things didn't go well for the Germans here. They were handed a decisive defeat in a battle at Jena in the fall of 1806. And that pretty much closed the door on the war. So the Germans were taken to the woodshed. They were forced to cede about half of their land possessions, uh, in addition to huge sums of money to the French. And this was, of course, pretty humiliating for the Germans. And they kind of took this as a time to reflect and regroup and go back to the drawing board. And they were really worried that they might be falling behind some of their Western European counterparts. So they implemented these sweeping changes that touched almost every aspect of society from uh, you know, changes in feudal arrangements, but all the way to youth education. Education reform would be a key component among what would be known as these uh, Prussian reform movements of 1807. And one of the most influential reformers in this movement was a social philosopher. His name was Johann Gottlieb Fichte. And uh, Fichte kind of shot up in popularity because of his views specifically on education. And these views are pretty eye-opening. I'm going to give you just a really basic, crude summary of his ideas. It was a uh, basically to ensure that every single citizen put Germany first. So it's the state first, everything else second, including the individual, your freedoms, your liberties, uh, all of that had to be subordinate to the state. So and here's an example. Here's Fichte talking about previous German greatness. He's referring to the high Middle Ages, and, and he says, seldom does the name of an individual stand out or distinguish itself, for they were all of like mind and alike in their sacrifice for the common weal. So in his book, there's no room for individualism. In fact, it was theorized that individualism is what was responsible for the military defeat at Jena. They thought that the mili military commanders were kind of acting on their own and not doing anything um, in uniformity. So Fichte basically felt that a roboticized populace, just kind of walking around like zombies, thinking only what the government wanted them to think, was the ideal society. And a mandatory system of state-run schools for children was the perfect place to ensure these outcomes. So what in the world does this have to do with the United States? Well, when American statesmen went over to Europe in the early 19th century, they were also impressed by what they saw in the schools, you know, the, the order and the obedience and, you know, the kids sitting in rows and waiting to, uh, you know, till they're called on, raising their hand when it's time to speak. And so they came back and they lobbied to have that exact model implemented here in our country. Now, why do you suppose that Americans, at least in time, uh, were susceptible to this? We were a country that believed in rugged individualism. We had a multiplicity of uh, educational providers. 
Uh, how did we get suckered into this Prussian model uh, in the 19th century? Well, I will say this, that people were skeptical, of course. So it didn't just, you know, come through uniformly where, you know, everybody just said, hey, uh, bring it on. They, they were skeptical, but I, I, I suppose the way that it's pitched and man, you know, it's, it's the same way that you can get Americans to believe that a state-run system of healthcare is going to be in their best interest. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you have this system of education and it's going to be for, uh, for the masses. Everybody is going to learn. Everybody's going to learn the same thing. And this is going to lead to material progress and eliminate inequality. And if it's kind of pitched in that manner, it's somewhat easy to get masses to believe it. Yeah. I would think, um, that's very evident uh, in the uh, healthcare debate these days, right now. And uh, but if you if you try to apply the same thing, say to the provision of food, if we mm -hmm. argued for uh, a top-down mandated system of uh, government uh, grocery stores and told people you had to uh, shop for your groceries at the government grocery store uh, that was assigned to you by virtue of where you lived, Americans wouldn't buy that. And yet uh, something very similar they bought into when it comes to education. You know, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that Americans wouldn't buy that anymore. Honestly, I mean, I'm not surprised by what people, the, the kind of following that somebody like Ocasio-Cortez gets um, mm -hmm. with some of the asinine stuff that she says. But, you know, you're right. I mean, if, if, if we wanted the government to, um, you know, take over social media platforms or, or, you know, like you say, food. Yeah. Most Americans would say, no, that's, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make sense. But I think it's one of these things where if a man, Horace Mann um, was a big believer in this. It's if you, if you pitch it as free, then people automatically think that it's better. Yeah. Um, and, and that was one of the things that, uh, that the early lobbyists were able to do with this system of education, because that's what the Prussians did. They made it free and available to every single individual. You mentioned Horace Mann, uh, Mike, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about him uh, or Justin or both of you. It's, it's impossible to talk about early public schools in America without mentioning the role of Horace Mann. Who was he and why is he important to this discussion? Uh, yeah, so Mann is usually credited as, you know, kind of the father of the American public school system, and rightfully so. I mean, he worked tirelessly to have a universal, free, and mandatory public school system established, not only in his home state of Massachusetts, but eventually nationwide. And the history textbooks, of course, treat this with great fanfare. Um, I don't really think that we should be celebrating the guy who imported the Prussian model of uh, control by schooling into the United States. But when when Mann was the secretary of the Board of Education uh, in Massachusetts, what he did was he took a trip. This was in the 1840s. He took a trip to Europe to evaluate national school systems. And just like others before him, uh, Prussia's school system left the most favorable impression on him. It was free. This was big for man. It was free. It was available to anyone, regardless of class. And uh, this was quite appealing. And here, this is what this is so interesting about man, because you kind of mentioned uh, today and the parallels between what people might might believe today. This is what makes Horace Mann exactly like the leftists of our country today. He was actually able to identify the inherent and obvious moral flaws with confiscating kids at an early age to brainwash them. And he said this. But, um, you know, when we hear leftists today acknowledge uh, communism or socialism, um, 
you know, one of the things that 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 they'll say is, yeah, okay, there's there's a hundred million deaths. Uh, you know, nobody's free. You got famine, starvation. People in Venezuela are eating zoo animals. But that's just because it hasn't been done correctly. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, if we can only get the right people in charge to make the right decisions, we can make this system work. It's never the system; it's always the people. And this is how man saw Prussia's school system: deeply flawed but perfectible. And that's the hubris of the left right there. Everything is perfectible, just as long as they are the ones overseeing it. So man came back from Europe and he said, we're gonna take all the best parts of the Prussian school system, we're gonna eliminate the bad parts and we are going to impose it here. Um, wow. Well, and, so typical of the left, isn't it? That uh, something has never worked or worked poorly before, somehow they can pull enough all-nighters to make it work here. We're gonna have to take a break, but we'll be back in a moment with uh, Mike Marchison and Justin Spears. the Reed Hour. This is Lawrence Reed, and we're broadcasting on the Loving Liberty Network. My guests today are Mike Margison and Justin Spears. They are both public high school social studies teachers in the state of Indiana, and we're talking about the origins of government schooling and its implications. Just before uh, the break, Mike and Justin, we were talking about Horace Mann and the origins of the uh, public school system in this country, uh, those origins coming from Prussia in the early part of the 19th century. I remember years ago coming across the words of a so-called progressive educator from the early 20th century, a man named Ross, Edmund Ross, I think was his name. You probably have come across this quote. He was the Illinois superintendent of public schools who said that the mission of government education was, quote, to take little lumps of, of human dough and shape them on the social kneading board which pretty well describes uh, what early advocates like Horace Mann for government schooling had in mind for America, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, the system is built on one key concept, and that's obedience. That's the heart of the Prussian system. And no matter what man thought he could do, um, obedience and is, is an omnipresent foundation. And you can't educate in a system designed for obedience. The two are basically incompatible. Look, let's put it this way. If you're going to convince people to subordinate themselves completely to the state, to put the interests of government officials above their own, what are you going to do? Are you going to teach them to think critically? You're going to teach these, you know, them to problem solve or ask questions? Absolutely not. That would be the absolute last thing that you would want them to do. Um, so yeah, they do see the kids as dough to be molded into whatever the government wants them to be. The system is organized that way. And Justin, you can probably attest to this. What do kids get in trouble for most in school? It's when they're being disobedient. It's when they're not following orders. Did you show up right at 830? Are you doing the work? Worksheet you're asked to be doing? Did you raise your hand when you when you wanted to speak? Kids are conditioned to be obedient robots. They're never encouraged to question or explore. And, and you know this, Justin, you can probably attest to this. If kids do question, they get shut down. They get in trouble, don't they? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the system is is set up to, as that quote accurately says, there mold them and break them too. You know, the old uh, military system of of build you know break them down and then build them back up. Well, we don't even build them up; we just break them down, um, unfortunately. And you know, you, you break the will of, of these young people's spirit to want to learn. You know, the the love of learning is a very organic and natural thing. It happens at a very early age. Uh, you know, I, I've said oftentimes when you look at early learning. Learning as far as, you know, learning to talk or eat or crawl and walk, it, you know, there's no one from the state that walks into your house and says, okay, today you're going to learn how to eat. Today you're going to learn how to walk. It happens very organically and naturally. But for some reason, we screw that up when we, you know, force them into these buildings uh, at an early age. And now the push is getting them in as early as three years old in government controlled schools. And so, yeah, that's definitely something that we see on a daily basis. Now, you guys know what most teachers would say today. They would be shocked to hear you say this. They would say, what? I don't teach obedience. I just I teach facts and figures and history and so forth. This obedience thing is often so uh, subtle that the teachers themselves don't realize the extent to which they are fulfilling this, uh, the mission of the so-called Prussian model and its American adherence. No, that's absolutely right. And wh where you see this is when a kid, you know, has the wherewithal to actually ask a question, um, you know, why am I learning to conjugate verbs in French? How, how is this going to help me later? On? You, the teachers don't want to hear that. You know, yeah. why am I doing, why am I, uh, ha why do I have to solve geometric proofs as a 14 year old? Um, can you explain that to me? And usually you'll just get this stopgap answer, which is uh, because it's going to help you later in life. And that's it. There's, there's no connecting the dots, no explanation of exactly how this is going to help them. It's just, shut up, stop asking questions, and get on with the assignment that I told you to do. Yeah. Now, in the second part of your two-part article, guys, uh, you provided some evidence on the performance of public education in America. Are we getting our money's worth? No, absolutely not. I mean, when you look at the raw amount of dollars, and I go through it in the article uh, where you look at the estimated spending in 2017 uh, at the national level at $69.4 billion, and then you look at what each state is spending as well, and you look at the rise of that compared to uh, GDP over time, it's gone from 2.6% in the 1950s up to 6.1% as recently as 2010, and just continues to keep going up and up. Here in the state of Indiana, we have school districts that oftentimes ask uh, for referendums, special referendums to be passed for spending. Um, you know, when you look at the results of what we get with our young men and women when they walk across that stage through quote unquote graduation, uh, it, it isn't, it isn't, our, we're not getting our money's worth. It, it isn't worth it. Uh, and no amount of money that we can continue to put forward uh, with reform is ever going to justify uh, the system that Mike so eloquently laid out there at the beginning. Uh, because as you said, all that is intended to do is to break them and mold them, uh, to take critical thinking, to take any kind of love of learning out of the equation uh, and just get them to go along with the flow of conformity. So when you look at the raw amount of dollars that that are being spent in education. No, absolutely, we are not getting our money's worth. I wonder, uh, and this is for either of you or both of you, when you think of what happens in the typical public school classroom in America today, and you put that up against uh, uh, the uh, standardized test scores and the flat performance now for, for decades, do you think the problem is what is taught or is it more uh, sins of omission, what is not taught? Why are we not getting uh, good results? 
Well, I think for me, and, and, and Mike, I'll throw this over to you here in just a second. Um, I, I've always maintained that that compulsory nature of schooling is is really, you know, you got to look at the foundation. Uh, and that, that kind of idea of cramming the kids in, and you talked about this, Mike, into arbitrary classes at arbitrary times with these uh, standards that are written either at the state capital level or now nowadays in Washington, D.C. It is just so arbitrary. And the compulsive nature of doing that, forcing them into it, it just absolutely crushes that desire and love of wanting to learn. And so, you know, I think in, in a way, at least in my opinion, standardized test scores, whether it be through uh, state tests or through international tests, are sometimes misleading uh, because they don't necessarily, I, I don't, I would argue, don't necessarily really even tell us anything uh, mm-hmm. other than what the student has been able to accomplish in terms of what the system has set up for them. Now, Mike, I don't know if you'd have anything else to add to that or... Well, I would just kind of reiterate what I went to earlier. Look, you're operating within a system that was never designed to educate. That was never its purpose. And so these results are going to continue to be what they are. Frankly, I'm not surprised by any of the of, of this data that I hear. I'm surprised the kids are learning anything at all within this system because it's, it's so repressive, to be honest with you. Yeah, and it runs uh, counter to the very nature of each of us as uh, a unique human being. We don't all learn at the same pace. One size fits all top-down mandates uh, coming from a state uh, or federal capital building uh, hardly uh, conform to uh, the, the nature of each of us as a very distinct uh, uh, individual, intermotivated. Uh, we work at different speeds. We have different interests. And yet uh, teachers today, even the best of them, are basically told uh, teach by the book. That, yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, you're trying to take millions and millions of individuals and then teach them all under the same model. And when it doesn't work, you know, everybody sits around scratching their heads. Yeah. And Mike and I have both said to uh, just just to, you know, for full transparency, you know, in, in this and we'll talk about solutions here in just a moment. But in the model that we're looking at here, uh, he and I may very well be out of a job because what we see education as being is market driven in terms of a solution here. And so when we take a look at the idea of the liberal arts education and this uh, kind of false dichotomy of getting a well-rounded education, whatever that means, uh, you know, we, we may not have students that want to take government class uh, their senior year or economics their senior year or world history civilization at a certain period of time. Um, and, you know, we need to open up the opportunity for kids to explore the love of learning of what their interests are. And that may mean that we don't uh, have a job at, at the, you know, in the way that it looks like today, at least. Great point. You know, in my own experience, I recall watching my sister uh, come through the same public school system I did five years behind me. And I could see uh, in my teenage years a huge difference, a huge decline in the quality of that instruction. And so not only was, uh, uh, you know, the uh, centralization of education that you've been talking about uh, uh, working to undermine the quality of education, but you also had in the 60s the rise of um, uh, teacher unions, uh, collective bargaining, uh, increasing encroachment on education by state bureaucracies and the federal government. So a lot of bad things are at work here to uh, 
combine together to produce some pretty bad results. I think we've just about run out of time for this second segment, but we'll be back after a break with Mike Margison and Justin Spears, high school social studies teachers in Indiana with some great thoughts about the problems in education. to the Reed Hour. This is your host, Lawrence Reed, and I'm talking today to two high school, public high school social studies teachers in Indiana, authors of a forthcoming book and of a recent two-part article at fee.org titled The History and Results of America's Disastrous Public School System. Uh, Those authors are Mike Margison and Justin Spears. And in the last two segments, Mike and Justin, we were talking about the origins of the uh, government education system in America and also some of the recent uh, uh, indications of of poor performance of public schooling. So the evidence is pretty clear that that public education in America is incredibly costly. It's very wasteful. And in many cases, it's ineffective, some cases even counterproductive. Do you think it can be fixed and improved, or is that a waste of time? Well, I think one of the things that we argue uh, is, and I've read a couple of different books now on attempts to reform. One book that I'd highly recommend if if people are interested in learning a little bit about reform is a book written by Stephen Brill called Class Warfare, Inside the Fight to Fix America's Schools. He basically chronicles uh, the Obama administration uh, race to the top initiative, and it really gives you just a a pretty crystal clear picture. I don't know that he's necessarily trying to paint this, but at least it was a, a big takeaway of mine that no amount of money that is going to be spent on this thing is going to fix it because it's fundamentally flawed. You know, if you're building a house, right, and the foundation is not um, solid, the house is going to crumble and fall apart. And that that's true of anything that you do in life, whether it's physical building structures or, uh, you know, your spiritual life or whatever it is. And so education is no different in that regards and that because, again, as we've said previously, uh, you know, the, the foundation is based off of that compulsive nature of, of forcing kids into schools, everything that, you know, them for moves forward is going to be uh, rotten. And I think that's, you know, one of the, the things that we've seen beyond just the raw amounts of dollars that have been wasted here too, is the impact that it's having on children. I just recently finished reading uh, Carrie McDonald's Unschooled book, uh, which is fantastic, wow. by the way, I highly recommend that as well. I and one of, the things, yeah, one of the things that she says in here is uh, she's, she's citing a report from the CDC on the amount of uh, children that have been um, diagnosed with ADHD. And she says 11% of children ages 4 to 17 have been diagnosed with ADHD. That number increased 42% from 2003, uh, 2004 to 2011, 2012, uh, with a majority of those diagnosed on medication. Perhaps even more troubling, she says, is one-third of those diagnoses occur in uh, children under 6. And I have two young children in 
well, both one of which has been uh, year after year asked to be tested for uh, ADHD. And so, you know, not only are we just wasting raw amounts of money, we're wasting human capital as well. Uh, wow. So no, I, you know, the, the short of it is, I don't think it can be fixed or improved in its current status. I think we need to strip it down, as I mentioned earlier, to a market-based um, scenario where people would have more freedom to choose what their education might look like. Well, what a testimony to uh, the system when you consider those numbers that we're, we're drugging so many kids because of the failures, not of themselves, but of the, the failures of uh, inherent to government education. It's uh, a tragic. Yeah, and unfortunately, we we are we're telling the kids that they're failures, right? I mean, they're not they're not obviously um, socially or uh, you know, mentally mature enough to know that hey, this isn't me; it's the system. Although I do, I will give kids a lot of credit. I think you know my one of my oldest sons is now going into sixth grade, and I think he was able to tell uh, over the last couple of years that you know, look, this isn't right. Something's not right with the way that you know school is set up, and you know, he oftentimes would complain about the way uh, school is, is done. And, you know, my youngest son has learned to play school a little bit, bit better. And I think, you know, even Carrie mentions that, you know, she was a student that learned how to play school, but still understood and knew that, you know, look, something wasn't right here uh, with this. And so, yeah, I mean, this obviously creates all kinds of problems in terms of social, emotional, uh, you know, maturity and, and mental status with students. I know, Mike, we've, uh, we teach in a, um, a school district that unfortunately has had a higher than normal number of uh, suicides of students over the last couple of years. Um, we've had a school shooting here in the state of Indiana not too uh, long ago uh, near us, and that obviously set off a lot of alarm bells. Nobody's taking the time to ask, you know, where, where is all this stress and anxiety coming from? And people inside public education oftentimes want to point the finger at the home, but they never want to self-analyze and say, well, maybe it's this system that's placing this undue stress and anxiety on these kids. So, so unschooling, which you mentioned, uh, Justin, and is the subject of Carrie McDonald's uh, new book by that title, is one solution for some parents, some children, but what are the other solutions, uh, especially for uh, those parents and children for whom um, any form of homeschooling is not uh, a particularly uh, good option. Yeah. So for, you know, any parent out there that's listening to this that may be thinking about, and I'm a member of a couple of different groups on um, social media, particularly on Facebook of homeschooling groups. And I hear uh, our C parents all the time say, you know, I want, I, I've got this feeling, this gut instinct that, you know, the, the system is letting my kid down. I want to homeschool, but I can't, uh, you know, two parent uh, working and we're not home to be able to do it. I, I would recommend uh, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. You can start there. There's some great resources there. Uh, the Sudbury School model is another model um, that, that kind of runs um, along with kind of self-directed uh, education system, more free, open uh, for kids to be able to explore what they want to learn. Uh, those obviously, in, depending on the state that you live in, may exist or may not exist. You'd have to check the resources on there. Uh, they're kind of scattered throughout the country. Uh, but one of the things that Carrie talks about, she highlights a lot of educators in her book that, you know, went away from public school and started these 
uh, kind of self-directed um, or uh, just unschooling models where, you know, they're there, they may have to kind of conform to whatever state requirements there are in terms of, you know, being there for a certain time period or a certain number of days. But then the autonomy that the students have there is really what you're looking for. You, you want to look for solutions that give students the opportunity to have ownership and control over their learning. And I think oftentimes we kind of poo-poo that or say, oh, you know, if we were to give students the, um, the freedom in their education, they would just sit at home and play video games all day or they would, you know, sit around on their social media accounts. I think that is erroneous. I think it completely discounts that love of learning. It may take the students some time to de-school kind of get things figured out. I mean, if you strip somebody away, you know, their freedom away from them and then give it back to them, it's going to take them some time to realize, you know, hey, here's what I can do. Here's what power and ability I have. Here's the responsibility I have. But anything that would kind of gear or focus around that, I think, is a, a solution that would be worthy of looking into. Yeah, Justin, I just want to add on to one of the things you said at the end there. Everybody thinks that like apathy is the default human state. It's not. Curiosity is. That's evidence since mm -hmm. you know anybody who has had a kid realizes that that's absolutely evidence. So the idea that if we took kids out of school, that they would just be sitting there staring off into space, twiddling their thumbs, that's 100% wrong. They would be learning. They'd just be learning in their own way, at their own pace, learning things that they want to learn. Humans are hardwired to learn. That's, that, that is basic, and I think that we need to understand that. And once people begin to accept that, they might be a little bit more inclined to accept the idea that maybe institutionalized schooling is not necessary. Well, I remember the uh, Nation at Risk report that came out, I think, in 1983, in which a panel of um, experts mm -hmm. took a, a deep, hard look at public education in America way back then and said that uh, if it was the result of something a foreign power had done to us, we'd consider it an act of war. And here it is decades later, and we're still talking about the uh, terrible shortcomings of public education with so many children falling through the cracks. Are you guys optimistic that we might finally in the near future be heading uh, toward getting this issue resolved? Well, Justin, I've heard more conversations about it lately, and that's, that is, um, encouraging to me. What about you? I mean, there just seems to be a little bit more dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, people are starting to wake up and see, you know, whether it's, you know, as they talk to their neighbors in their community around, you know, as I have conversations with uh, families in and around the area that I live in, you know, people are starting to to wake up to, hey, you know, something's not right here. This this doesn't feel right. Uh, what, what are our options? What can we do? I think everybody kind of thinks, well, the school system worked for me. It has to work for my kids. But I, I do start to hear a little bit more pushback with that. Homeschooling is very popular here in the state of Indiana. Uh, again, Carrie mentions this in her book. She talks about how it's going to take people uh, inside of education to come forward and, and talk about uh, the disastrous results that we've had and encourage people to look for another uh, option. But yes, I am optimistic. Hey, that's great. Mike and Justin, Mike Margison, Justin Spears, I want to thank you for being my guests on the show today, uh, talking about uh, the American public school system and uh, what its prospects are for improvement or or uh, replacement, perhaps. I want to call everybody's attention in the few moments we have remaining uh, to the article, the two-part article that you guys wrote on the FEE, FEE.org website, called The History and Results of America's Disastrous Public School System. We look forward to your book uh, when it comes out. Uh, Mike and thank Justin, you. thanks so much. 
Thank you. Thank you.